listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the book of Acts, how Christians live. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. Well, let's open our Father's Word to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, I'm going to cover the first five verses. And you might be saying to yourself, well, that doesn't make any sense. We looked at Acts chapter 16 last week. But I promise you, when we ended our time last week, that we were going to zero in on two particular things, teenagers and circumcision. And what that means, you say, well, that's like an unlikely combination there. Well, it is, but it was all wrapped up in one individual as we're going to see in just a moment. And uh, hopefully you have an appetite for God's word. You understand that as we went through the Acts chapter 16 last time and we ended our time together, you had enough of a wet appetite to realize that there's more in God's word that I can dig into, more that I can learn from God's word. And that's why I promised you that we would go into deeper detail into two particular things that have practical application for your life and for mine if you want to make following Jesus the ambition of your life. Hopefully you do. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. That's what we read about and we looked at in Acts chapter 15 when we covered that just a few weeks ago. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Now, if all you do with the word of God is read it at a surface casual level and you don't dig deeply into it, you don't let the Bible become the best commentary on itself, then you will miss an innuendo, a suggestion, a teachable moment here that has already come in just the first few verses of chapter 16. And one of those teachable moments is that God is using, yet again, another young person to accomplish and to achieve his goal of spreading the gospel. Timothy, at this particular time, is probably between the ages of 13 on the low side to 20 on the high side. And I think 20 actually is probably too high. He's probably not that old. And so if you read this casually, if you just read this on the surface, and if you're not a good student with a steady diet of God's word, you'll miss a teaching that's presented here that's practical, it's pertinent, For your life and for mine, whether you have teenagers or not, you're certainly going to encounter teenagers who are disciples, who are followers of Jesus Christ. And if you're like me, and you are, because I'm like you, I need my thinking to be changed on a moment-by-moment basis. I need to make sure that my thinking comes into alignment with what's taught in God's Word. Otherwise, I will miss the kind of life that God has in store for me in Jesus. Does anybody want to miss what God has in store for you in Jesus? I hope not. It's so sad that so many people think today that fullness in Christ 
is found in material possessions. Now, God might bless you materially. In fact, he has blessed you materially if you have clothes on your back and you're sitting in a comfortable chair. But so many in the body of Christ mistake financial blessing for all the other blessings that God has for us in Jesus Christ. He's blessed us so many ways that it's impossible to count them and it takes an entire lifetime and then eternity to really come to understand all of the fullness that we have in Jesus. But if you read the Bible casually, if you don't dig deep into the Bible, if you're not into the practice of recognizing and embracing the Bible as the best commentary on itself, then perhaps today will be a little bit of fuel in your fire, a little bit of motivation to help you understand that the Bible is a book that is worthy of studying. And the more you study it, the more you get to know your God and his ways. And there's a direct correlation between worshiping and serving our God and our knowledge of the God we want to worship and serve. Because you can't worship and serve a God you don't know. That's right. If you want to worship and serve him fully, you have to come to know him with increasing momentum in your life. And that's why the study of God's word is so important. Turn with me, for example, to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. The book that bears the name of this disciple that we just read about and that we're looking into his life now in Acts chapter 16. There's 1 Timothy and there's 2 Timothy, written by this very same one, Paul, who wanted to take Timothy on this journey that we just read about in Acts chapter 16. Now here are two of the books that were written to Timothy by that very same Paul. And when we get to chapter 4, verse 12 of 1 Timothy, we read these words written by Paul to this very same Timothy. He says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. This was written probably 10, 15, 20 years after the events that we read about in Acts chapter 16. So we know that Timothy is not a 60 or 70 year old man. Now that doesn't mean that you can't be young in heart. Hopefully you are. If you're 60 or 70 or 80, I met an 80 year old woman the other day who didn't look like she was older than 60 and I'm not kidding. She just looked really, really young. You might say to yourself, well, why are you saying that 60 is not young or 70 is not young? Well, in the culture of the day, that would have not been the age where you could have been encouraged by the Apostle Paul with the words that he's saying right here. Let nobody look down on you because of your youthfulness, but set an example for everyone, no matter what their age might be. I want you in your youthfulness to set an example for people in life in your practice, in your speech, in purity, another word for holiness. I want you to demonstrate a godly example of how a disciple lives. Now, what's interesting there is that in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, this very same Paul telling this very same Timothy that we are reading about in Acts chapter 16, it's the introduction of him in Acts chapter 16, Paul told Timothy to set apart or to appoint elders, leaders of the church. That's only fitting that Timothy needed a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of inspiration to do that because the name elder implies not just 
physical age, not just biological age, but also experience in the things of faith. It's not to suggest that you cannot be an elder or a leader in the church until you reach an old age, because then we would only be looking at it as a biological term, elder. But typically, and it's not until we get a few years under our belt that we begin to operate in wisdom, and oftentimes age is associated with wisdom, but there are people who are incredibly mature spiritually, and they're not very old people, and Timothy was one such person. Now, if his job was to appoint elders and the qualifications for elder are presented in Titus chapter 1, and also we'll read about Titus in just a little bit, but also in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Timothy, who obviously was young, was younger than what you would expect to have such a monumental task. And he needed a little bit of encouragement from his mentor, from the man who poured into him that we were reading about, that we're going to look at even more in Acts chapter 16, the guy who took Timothy on his second missionary journey, Paul. So Paul says to him, listen, you have this incredible task. We've been on a missionary trip together. We've been on trips together. We've planted churches. We've seen God move powerfully. And there are times when I've left you behind to finish what we started together. And one of the things that I've left you behind to do, he did the same thing with Titus, was to appoint elders. And because Timothy was younger than probably many of the people he was appointing, he might have struggled from time to time with this thing that you struggle with from time to time, a little bit of fear pressure. Lord, I'm not adequate. Lord, I'm not capable. Lord, I'm not qualified to do that. And so the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul to Timothy saying, don't let anybody look down on you because of your youthfulness, because of your age. God's hand is on you. In fact, elsewhere we read that Paul says, fan into flame the gift of God given to you through the laying on of my hands. See, God gives you and then you give to God. God gives you, he blesses you, he anoints you, he appoints you, and then it's your choice, it's my choice, what we will give to God as an act of worship in the overflow. So Timothy is introduced in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts, and then we read about him in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, we read about him in Philemon, we read about him in the other books that Paul writes in the New Testament, certainly 1st and 2nd Timothy. We read about him in the book of Hebrews, where at one point, apparently, he was imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. And that becomes incredibly significant because of what we're reading here, perhaps flippantly at first, but faithfully at the last. Timothy's mother would allow her young son to go on a world tour with a man that they didn't know terribly well, other than the fact that he was an apostle. Timothy and his mother came to know Jesus as their savior on Paul's first missionary journey because at this particular point, there the pump is primed. They're ready to go. No mother in her right mind is going to entrust her young son into the hands of another individual unless that individual is trustworthy or unless the mother is not really 
all there. And this is huge what's being set up here in Acts chapter 16. Look again, verse 1. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So this is a mixed marriage. You have a Jew and a non-Jew. The mother is a believer. We don't know about the father. We know that he's a Gentile. He's a non-Jew. It's huge what's being presented here. And how is Timothy being described? Because this, as I said, took place about 10, 15, 20 years before Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, as we just looked at, refers to Timothy as a young man. So if he was a young man, say he was 35, probably around 30 to 35, maybe 40 on the high side, and you do your math, Timothy is probably not more than 40 years old on the high side in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. So if you do the math, we understand that he's probably between 13 and 20 years old when he is called a disciple. That is the designation that is given to him under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through this intelligent man named Luke who wrote the book of Acts. Timothy is described as a disciple. Now, the more things change, the more they stay the same. At least that should be the case in the body of Christ. Because if in the first century, a very young individual is referred to as a disciple, a follower of Jesus, and they're that young, between 13 and the low side, and 20 on the high side, years of age, then you and I could learn a thing or two about that today because you either have young children or you have teenagers or maybe your children are emancipated, you no longer have children in your house, but you're going to come across teenagers, young adults, but in this day, if you went through your bar mitzvah at the age of 13, it was conferred upon you young adulthood and responsibility. How far we've come, right? This is what I mean when I say the more things change, the more they stay the same. We should, in the body of Christ, see teenagers who have given their lives to Christ as disciples. We should see them as those who are recognized as having the hand of God on them. You might have a teenage daughter. You might have a teenage son. You might have pre-teenage children. And you might be tempted from time to time to think, well, they're too young to, and you might be right about that, as we're going to see in just a moment, but you also might be wrong if you see them as something other than a disciple of Jesus. Oftentimes, we sell our children short, and we sell teenagers short by thinking they're not capable, they're not at a place where we can and trust them into the hands of the Father. But you can, and you should. Timothy's mother did. And again, the Bible is not a book of exceptions, but it's a book of examples. Here we have a young disciple, a follower of Jesus, who is released to get circumcised. We'll talk about that in a moment. And released to go on this missions trip with an apostle. It's huge. Would you do that as a parent? If your teenager came to you and the Spirit of God was nudging them to go into full-time service for Jesus, would you allow your faithful father to have your young daughter, 
your young son to go into the service of the Lord. Timothy's mother did. The Spirit of God was moving, and she released her son to the father. We need to learn how to do that ourselves. We need to understand that a young adult who's given their life to Jesus can and should be seen as a disciple capable of being used by Almighty God, capable of being called into the service of Almighty God. Don't think that because they're a teenager, they're not capable of hearing from God or that they're not capable of being used by God. What a tremendous disservice we do. We do it all the time by telling our children, either we say it overtly or we model it by our behavior. We say it overtly or we model it by our behavior. We say it overtly or we model it by our behavior. You can get serious about Jesus when you get older. Not biblical. In fact, if you're an adult, past your teenage years, by the way, whatever age you are, and you look back at your life in Jesus, I bet if you knew Jesus as a young person, as a child or as a teenager, I bet you wish you had at least one more person, if not one being enough, who was cheering you on and encouraging you to live a fully surrendered life in Jesus. The world could use another encourager just like that. And you might be that person. You might be pregnant, waiting to have children. Now's the time to pray for God to get a hold of your child or your twins, if you've got them, or for all that matter, triplets or quadruplets. Now's the time for you to begin to ask God, God, get a hold of my son, get a hold of my daughter, get a hold of me to such an extent that I don't unintentionally educate my child to wait until they're too old to follow you. Be careful you don't condition your children to follow Jesus at a much more shallow level. When you should, you could, you must spur them on to be the disciple that God predestined them to be. Many of us as older adults, we can learn a lot from a teenager who's on fire for God. God called Samuel when he was young. God called David as a teenager to kill Goliath when a whole army of Israelites were quaking and shaking in their boots. And here again, it seems that God called Timothy when he was a very young individual between the ages of 13 and 20. God called him into his service and we read about Timothy again and again and again and again. And one of the things we need to understand as parents, we need to understand that one of the greatest things that we do that's not great, it's sad. We hold back the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of our children because we're afraid for their safety and their well-being. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be concerned about their safety and well-being. But when it comes to releasing your child into the faithful hands of their heavenly father, you can do that. Timothy's mother did it with Timothy, and we're beneficiaries of the life and the ministry of Timothy to this day. We've just spent a few minutes here already, and we understand that. Don't get in the way of God's work in the life of your son or your daughter. Entrust your children into the faithful, loving hands of their heavenly father. You wish that you would have done that at an earlier age, and let's be honest about it. At least at a deeper level, 
The older I get in Jesus, the more I realize that I probably could have surrendered to Jesus even more at an earlier age. I probably could have given Jesus more of my money. I could have given Jesus more of my time. I could have given Jesus more of my body. I could have given Jesus more of my everything. Encourage your child to give themselves 100% to Jesus. And if you don't have children, encourage every child you see at every opportunity you have to live a fully surrendered life to Jesus. No one who truly surrenders to God will ever live to regret it. No one. Timothy is called the disciple. God is moving powerfully in his life. God is moving powerful in the life of the apostle Paul. And Paul needs someone to go with him, to be a help to him, and to attend to things, and to be mentored. At that point, Paul didn't necessarily know that Timothy was going to grow up to be this one who would appoint elders, and the one to whom Paul would write a letter and say, here are some qualifications of elders and deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Maybe he did. Maybe prophetically God spoke to him, but it had not yet been realized. And what if Paul had used human insight or the human way of looking at people when he looked at Timothy? Why, he might have belittled him. He might have patted him on the head and say, well, son, you're a little bit too young to understand the ways of God, what it means to surrender to him fully. If your son or daughter comes to you and says, dad... I think God, you better listen. And you better do more than just listen. You better make sure that you don't, with the next words that come out of your mouth or the expression that might crop up on your face, you don't throw ice water on what could be the fire of God, wooing and pursuing them because of your own fear of what might happen to them. And by the way, the fear was real. Up to this point, people have been thrown in prison. People have been flogged. People have lost their lives for giving their life to Jesus. This was no small thing. You want me to give my teenage son to go with you, Paul, on a missionary journey? I know what's happened to believers. And by the time you get to the book of Hebrews, Timothy has been released from persecution. So much of what's crept into the American brand of Christianity is wrapped up in comfort and convenience, which is not biblical. God didn't call you to live a comfortable and convenient life. If he's given you a comfortable and convenient life, then he's done it with the caveat and the understanding that you will help those who are not as comfortable and don't have it as convenient as you do, that you'll help people be fully devoted followers of Jesus through all of the resources and all the goodness and all the blessings that God has given you. It's a terrible thing that we have done in the United States by confusing prosperity, physically speaking, with surrender to Jesus. If that were the case, the book of Acts has no place in our lives, no place in our theology, no place in our walk with Jesus because we see persecution and opposition and people losing their lives and people suffering physical harm, shipwreck, being beaten, so this is not a small thing that Timothy's mother did by entrusting him into the loving hands of a faithful father, entrusting her teenage son into the hands 
of a loving father. And if she could do it, then you can do it too. I can do it too. We can encourage young people to be on fire for God and let them teach us a thing or two about what that fire looks like in the daily grind of life. So many of us allow ourselves to become distracted and divided in our devotions and where our our treasures lie because life has dealt us a curveball or two. And if we're really honest, we get at times bitter with God and disappointed that things didn't happen the way we thought he told us they would happen when actually we put words in God's mouth. I know I have. The greatest thing that you can do with your children is help them to be godly. It's a wonderful thing if you raise polite children, but it's a missed opportunity if you don't raise godly children. Politeness is wonderful when you consider the alternative, but godliness should be the aim of every parent, and it should be the aim of every adult, and it should be what motivates us to talk to young people, not with a pat on their head, well, you just wait till you get older and get a little wiser. No, you surrender your life to Jesus right now because no one who surrenders to Jesus will ever live to regret it. So when it comes to teenagers, disciples, we're supposed to release them to our faithful father, but protect them from filth. The difficulties and hardships that somebody will encounter when they're following Jesus, God's got that. But you need to be really careful. We need to be careful in this day and age in which we live that we don't expose our children, our teenagers and pre-teenagers to filth that they otherwise would be protected from because we're not doing our due diligence and watching and paying attention to what's happening in their lives. I have in my hand a smartphone. It's been responsible for dumbing down many people. We also have tablets and we have computers and we have electronic games and we have televisions You can Google it for yourself. The average teenager now spends more time on a device with a television, a tablet, a computer, a smartphone, or on a gaming console than they do sleeping. They now spend more time with an electronic device than they do in their own bed. And many teens are in bed with a device. It's as far as I'll go there, but you can imagine. We live in an area right here, and I don't mean me as a reference to my family and I, I mean we. We live in an area where if you want to shoot a rifle, if you want to learn how to use a handgun, you have the choice of any firing range that you could possibly imagine, any gun club that you could possibly imagine, you can learn how to shoot that rifle, learn handgun safety, learn rifle safety. You can spend as much money or as little money as you want. You can go as often or as infrequently as you want. Today, on my way here, just a couple of miles from here, riding my car, and I'll tell you, I was tempted because there were four large turkeys in the road. I didn't have a handgun, didn't have a rifle, but I was driving my car. (laughs) And Thanksgiving's just a few days away. Could have hit a couple of them and given them away to some of those needy people that we're helping with our turkey baskets, if you know what I mean. But would you go hunting with somebody who didn't know the basics of rifle safety or 
Would you conceal carry your weapon and not know how to use that thing? Think you're going to be a cowboy and pull it out? You know, when you see these movies where people are running at really fast speeds and they're pulling out their, you know, the police are pulling out their, their guns in these movies and they're running fast and they're picking everybody off. Do you think that is the way real life is? It's not the way real life is. You got to have a steady hand if you expect to hit that target. The truth of the matter is that if you're, unless you're, out of your mind, you would never go hunting with somebody else who has a rifle who shows up and they come with this package from Walmart that hasn't even been opened. And they tell you, if I, I know I just committed anathema by saying you could get a rifle at Walmart to our purest hunters here, right? What are you doing with that? That's my rifle. Well, why is it still in the package? I just picked it up from Walmart. Well, have you shot before? No, I'm going to figure it out as we go hunting. You're going to associate with that person and put yourself at risk with this person who doesn't even know the basics of rifle safety, firearm safety? Why in the world would you as an adult give a loaded smartphone to a teenager? It's like giving a loaded gun to somebody who doesn't know how to use it. And I can tell you, as one of the several pastors of this church, we have counseled parent after parent guardian after guardian, because they have done nothing other than give their child a smartphone or a tablet or internet access or access to games. See, as an adult, you've learned a thing or two about morals and the use of your time. At least you've learned something and about ethics and behavior and conduct, right from wrong. But this, a smartphone is not a babysitting device. A tablet is not to give to your child to keep them busy because you're too busy parenting or being a guardian. And I'm saying that respectfully. See, many parents and guardians, you don't realize what you've done. And many times, by the time you realize what you've done, it's already been done. You're giving your child the equivalent of an immoral loaded handgun by giving them a smartphone or a tablet or computer access, internet access. They don't know how to use that thing. They don't know how to handle that thing. And I was even thinking about this before I got ready to talk about it. What could I tell to those of you who are parents, those of us who are parents or guardians, is there some kind of a program that I can put on my computer? Is there something I can put on my, my kid's smartphone to prevent them from going some places? Well, there are those kinds of things, but they're far inferior to what looks back at you when you look in the mirror. It's you. And you have the ability to train your child and to say no to your child and to be the parent in your household. And if your child is not willing to listen to you, believe me, they will learn to listen to you if you will parent, if you will steward them, and if you will protect them from the filth. The internet and smartphones, you think of Instagram, you think of Snapchat, you think of Twitter, you think of Facebook. Listen, ignore your children, and they will go away. Somebody's going to disciple your child. It's just a matter of who it's going to be. It's not just images and videos that your child is going to be exposed to. They're going to be exposed to an entirely different way of life than what would honor Jesus Christ. And you're opening your child up unwittingly. It's not that you do it. You wouldn't purposely hand a, a loaded gun to somebody who doesn't know the first thing about a loaded 
cocked gun. You would never hand that to somebody who doesn't know anything about handgun safety. But yet we see parent after parent doing exactly that, giving a smartphone to somebody who doesn't know how to handle it. And what you're doing, not that you would intend to do this, what you're doing is you're setting your child up for a lifetime of difficulty and hardship and addiction and a worldview that flies in the face of a life of faith and trusting God. You wouldn't open up the front door of your house and say, come on, devil, come get me. Come on, devil, come get my kid. There's certain things that you wouldn't watch with your child that you shouldn't watch with your child. But don't you think that your child is old enough to not watch those things and do those things when you're not around? For many of us, we need to take the devices back. For others of us, don't give them to them in the first place because you will have hell to pay. I can promise you that. You will have hell to pay. Your child might not be as popular in the school system or in the neighborhood as they otherwise would be, but what does it profit a person if they gain the whole world and lose or forfeit their soul? Jesus said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. If your smartphone is disrupting the family, take it away. If the tablet is destroying the soul of your child, take it out of their possession and show them with a hammer and smash it if you need to, to help them understand that you are serious about Jesus and you want them to be serious about Jesus. If they don't learn being serious about Jesus from you, then who are they going to learn that from? How are they going to learn that? Ignore your children and they'll go away. They'll go learn morals and values and worldview from somebody else. It's just a matter of who they're going to learn it from. And today there is an entire generation of young people, teenagers and preteen, who are growing up learning morals and values that fly in the face of what we read in the Bible, fly in the face of what you would be honored to disciple them in, of what God wants them to learn for one reason and one reason only. You're not putting your foot down. You're not stepping into play and saying no. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You need to step in and be the parent and be the guardian for your child and your children. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, there will be hell to pay if you don't. What is a profit if a person gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his or her soul? Listen, it's that bad and it's that serious. Entrust your children into the faithful hands of a loving father, but protect your children from filth. That's what we see in the Bible again and again. This is what I'm pleading with you to do in your own family. So don't look at a teenager as somebody that we pat on the head and just say, hey, when you get old enough, then you can serve Jesus. Look at them as a disciple of Jesus. If they've given their life to him, they're a disciple incapable of being used by Almighty God in powerful ways, they might even exceed your usefulness to God. Imagine that. What a beautiful thing that would be. Isn't that the objective of raising children? To teach them how to be faithful and surrendered to Jesus at a much earlier age than you learned? And to look at the whole rest of their life as being an opportunity to bear fruitfulness for Jesus. That's what a parent really is. 
and we only have them for such a short time, and then it's gone. Let God get your act together as you surrender to Jesus. And be faithful to your faithful father. Help your children be faithful to their heavenly father and protect your children from filth. Now, I promised you that I wouldn't just talk about teenagers, but I talk about circumcision as well. And there seems to be a contradiction here in the word of God because in Acts chapter 16, Paul has Timothy circumcised. But they just had this whole big hoopla in Acts chapter 15 about not requiring circumcision as a sign or a a prerequisite for salvation. Look with me at Acts chapter 15, verses 1. And then verse 5, and then verse 11, and verse 19. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is in reference to the Gentiles. And then verse 6, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. So this big debate ensues with the apostles and the elders of the Jerusalem church. They have this council and they debate this issue. Should we require non-Jews, Gentiles, to observe the Old Testament law and to be circumcised. Because if you were circumcised, it was a sign of the covenant, that you were agreeing to follow God's way and to be a Jew. And so when we get to verse 11 and verse 19, it says this, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will, the Jews and the Gentiles. Verse 19, James says this, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Trouble them with what? Trouble them with the prerequisite of circumcision. So it's okay for the Jew as a sign of the covenant, but not a requirement for those who are not Jews. And so that issue is settled once and for all. Acts chapter 15, we spent some time on that. You can look at it for yourself. So why then, look with me at Acts chapter 16. Look what happens here, verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him on his second missionary journey. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. That's the qualifying statement, because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. This is a different situation than Acts chapter 15, where you're talking about full through and through Greeks who were not Jews. Should we require them to be circumcised as a prerequisite for salvation? Because Timothy's situation is that his mother was a Jew, but his father was a Gentile. And remember, Paul's practice was to go into the synagogue. He gets into a city, and he makes his way to the synagogue, and he looks for the low-hanging fruit. I'm saying that respectfully. Those who have been listening to the Word of God, those who have been listening to the Old Testament, and he simply wants to proclaim to them that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah spoken of in the Old Testament. That's why he was going to the synagogue. That's why he was looking for people that God was already at work in their life and he would simply present to them that Jesus, who died on the cross, is the one spoken of. Jesus, who was resurrected from the dead, is the one spoken of in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, to not be circumcised and to be a Jew was equivalent to being an apostate. And if somebody had a Jewish mother, you were considered legally to be a Jew. But Timothy had a problem. He was legally a Jew, but because he wasn't circumcised, he wasn't following the covenant, and he was considered to be, by Jewish people, an apostate. Look with me at Genesis chapter 17, 
Genesis chapter 17, verse 14. Look what it says here. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. What covenant? The Abrahamic covenant, the sign of which was circumcision. How do you know whether somebody was really a Jew and they were worshiping and serving the living and true God by whether or not if it was a man, they were circumcised. Now, Paul's objective is to go and to preach to the Jews in the synagogue, but he then had an issue. The issue was, was he going to value Gentiles over Jews or Jew over Gentile with this one, Timothy, who had come from a mixed family. Mother was a Jew, father was a Greek. There's no way that his message would have been advanced if he was going to be preaching and teaching to Jews, if he was taking somebody who was legally a Jew with him but had not been circumcised. They would have looked at him and it would have become, it would have been this huge rabbit trail. And if you haven't got it by now, you understand that Paul was a master at keeping the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing was salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. They didn't want circumcision or the law to become an obstacle. They're not two ways or multiple ways of being saved. You're saved by personal faith in Jesus. Now, if Paul had walked into a synagogue and wanted to continue to teach as he was able to do as a Pharisee, one who was well-versed in the law, if he had walked into a synagogue and he had Timothy with him who was legally a Jew but had not been circumcised, they would have looked at him, Paul, and they would have said, are you out of your mind? You bring an apostate here and you want us to accept whatever you have to say about the Old Testament and whatever else you want to say about Jesus or anybody else, you want us to accept that as credible? Aren't you familiar with Genesis 17, 14? So Paul pulls the rug right out from underneath them, removes that from even being a point of contention I'm going to get Timothy circumcised so that I can make the main thing the main thing, and the main thing is not a thing. He's a person. His name is Jesus. Look with me at Galatians chapter 2. A different situation with a man named Titus. By the way, Galatians, that area, one of the areas where Paul had gone in and done his missionary work, and here we are reading about a book to the people, the believers in Galatia. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. He's not from a mixed family where his mother was Jewish or Gentile and his father was uh, Gentile or Jewish. Titus was fully a Greek, and he was not compelled to be circumcised. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out on our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, meaning the Old Testament, the law, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel, the main thing, might be preserved in you. And so when we get to Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 and 6, we see Paul's teaching on circumcision again. 
Verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, you Gentile, non-Jewish believers, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Christ will be of no advantage to you. Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And then when we get to Galatians chapter 6, verse 15, it says this, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, and we're leading up to the main thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Corinth, one of the areas where Paul went on a missionary journey. And now we're reading a letter that was written to those believers. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so when we get to the book of Ephesians, again, an area where Paul went on a missionary journey, and we're reading a letter here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. The historicity and the story unfolds in the book of Acts, and then in the New Testament, we have book after book after book that the apostle that we're reading about in the book of Acts wrote to the believers who came to faith as a result of the missionary journeys. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And by the way, what he's talking about in regard to works is the Old Testament law. Circumcision would be part of that. How is a person saved? Listen, if you couldn't be saved through circumcision or through adhering to the Old Testament law, and we already looked by Genesis 17, 14, that circumcision was given by Almighty God. Almighty God gave that as a sign that you were in and among the people who worshiped the living and true God, the God of Israel, who's the God of the Bible, who's the God of the Christian. If adhering to the Old Testament law couldn't get you saved, and that it's only grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, then what would make us think that some kind of a standard that we present to God would be better than his law? Take that monkey off your back. There ain't nothing you can do to save yourself. You can't be good enough. You can't avoid the things that you need to avoid. You can't do enough to save yourself and earn enough brownie points if there's such a thing in the sight of Almighty God, the only thing that you can do to have all of your sins forgiven and to have a relationship with God right now and a relationship that will go into all of eternity is to accept that God put all of your sin on Jesus who was without sin and that his blood was shed in place of your blood that God forgives you of all of your sins by nothing else, nothing other than the undeserved favor of God through faith in what he did through Jesus. It is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of yourselves. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. 
You can also invite Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.